Geopolitics and Empire is joined by Henry Koppel, who's a federal prosecutor in Connecticut with over 30 years experience investigating and prosecuting national security matters, domestic terrorism, violent crimes, narcotics trafficking, and white collar crime. He's also the author of War on Hate, How to Stop Genocide, Fight Terrorism, and Defend Freedom, which you can pick up now in the digital format or, or physical. Welcome to the podcast, Henry. Thank you so much, Rove. It's an honor to be here. Uh, it's great to have you uh, on. And so uh, you, your book is very timely, considered what, considering what's happening right now. And it deals with attempting to stop ideologies of hate, which can lead to terrorism and genocide and so forth. Um, you, you, you know, one interesting thing you, I, I, you mentioned was how often perpetrators are ordinary people. Uh, and that you know, made me think of this book I have by Milton Mayer, uh, they thought they were free, where he interviews, you know, a dozen or so average Germans and how they participated, um, how they went along with the Nazi regime. And they were just, you know, ordinary people that got swept up in it and, and participated in uh, various degrees. And so you also discuss things like how hate campaigns usually precede violence or genocide. And so, uh, you know, the floor is uh, yours. Sure. Well, thank you so much, Bovier. This is... Uh... It's an issue that's been on my mind, like I think a lot of your listeners, perhaps, and folks interested in public affairs. I was certainly one of those folks who, after 9-11, was curious to answer the question, so-called, why do they hate us? And uh, you know, other things that I had an interest in the world, the Middle East peace process, so-called, and how the Oslo Accords uh, fell apart in a uh, tsunami of terrorism and recrimination, et cetera. And so these... And my own work, I'm now retired as a prosecutor, I should say, so um, nothing I say speaks for the Justice Department, of course. But um, I had prosecuted a bunch of white supremacists in Connecticut for illegal weapons and explosives trafficking. And yet again, in that case, when we searched their apartments and residence at the time of the arrests, at the close of the investigation, you could see that their lives were just marinating in this kind of hatred. All the symbols, iconography, and um, literature of white supremacy and all the things they hate. It was really a 24-7 obsession for them, almost like a kind of surrogate religion. And so in the wake of 9-11 especially, and with that case in mind, and the failure of what was hoped in the 90s to be the Mideast peace process, I started looking and saying, you know, what seems to be reported in a lot of the public media doesn't seem to act stack up with what's happening. And what I mean by that is, when it came to genocide, people would say, well, these are the product of ancient hatreds. Especially political leaders, including many U.S. presidents of both parties, would say, we can't intervene. This is ancient hatreds. There's not a lot we can do about it. And yet, when you look at history, you see that groups of very competitive ethnicities often live alongside each other with very low levels of intergroup violence. Genocide is the rare exception. So that ancient hatreds hypothesis seems to have some holes in it. And then on the terrorism side, we saw this a lot after 9-11. Well, um, this is caused by poverty and by desperation. And some would say the blowback now from the ravages of Western colonialism. And not to say that those things don't matter, because people in a vulnerable place and a hard place are more vulnerable to solutions that might not be efficacious, to put it mildly. But... When people do opinion polling around the world, it turns out that those who most support terrorism tend to be in the upper half of the income profile and the education profile. People at the lower end of the income profile tend to be polling data-wise the most opposed to terrorism. And I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that 
when you're closer to subsistence, living a precarious lifestyle, you don't have time for politics. You got to get food on the table. You got to take care of your family. And that's corroborated by the fact that when you do the demographics of those who commit terrorist acts, it turns out that most of the terrorists, both the group leaders like the Osama bin Ladens and the frontline, the suicide bombers, the attackers, they also tend to come disproportionately from the upper half of the income and the education profile. So the poverty desperation aspect doesn't seem to work. And then I started noticing, and there was, I would say, insufficient reporting in the mainstream press, that when you look at all these terrorist movements, all the different kinds from around the world, including domestic terrorists in the U.S. in the late 60s and early 70s, the Badem-Einhof gang in Germany, the Red Brigades in Germany and Italy, my book goes through snapshots of all these groups and many others. And you find that despite their very widely divergent political aims and expressed political objectives, their uh, mechanisms, their uh, modus operandi has one thing totally in common, which is they all, just like the white supremacists I prosecuted back in the early 2000s, they all marinate themselves in these us versus them paradigms of hatred. The idea that the reason we're in a bad place isn't because of some flaws within our own society or our community. It's because of them. They did it to us. And the best way to get out of our problem is to destroy them. And it turns out also with um, research that's been done, sort of social psychology experiments, when you read people various um, appeals toward, what's the word for it, revenge, um, you'll find that when you measure people in all kinds of social psych labs around the world, the one that gets the most strongest emotional response is always, the reason you're in this bad place is because of what they did to you. If you give other demographics or economics or other things or more complex explanations, you'll get a response of why you shouldn't like those other people. But when it's they did this to you and put you in this bad place, it's like a trigger within our tribal mindset. So then I start looking at the terrorist organizations, and you see they are so effectively propagandizing their own potential field of recruits. And you see the same thing before genocides. Nazi Germany, for the 10 years before World War II and the Holocaust, was just a snake pit of radical indoctrination and hatred targeting the Jews. There were others too, Jews, capitalists, Americans, whatever. And you tell the same thing in Rwanda before that horrific genocide, 800,000 plus killed, often in hand-to-hand massacres uh, within just three months. You saw it, and I know that you come from uh, Croatia, and so I'd be very interested in your views because the Bosnian, the, the Serbian genocide of the Bosnian Muslims, which also went after uh, Croatian Catholics as well, um, there was so much hate propaganda by Milosevic's regime there too. So that became my raison d'etre for writing, is that we're missing the causation analysis. Not that there's any one factor. There's always multiple factors. But the critical factor that seems to trigger and drive these events was being largely neglected, both within the press and many foreign policy think tanks. And that's where I got to the book. Yeah, and I was just going to, I, I was going to bring up the whole uh, Yugoslav war aspect, you know, just to get your thoughts where, you know, I'm ethnically a, a Croat, a Slav. I, I frequently mentioned my my grandfather, who I knew very well, actually was a, uh, you know, for three years, Croatia during World War II was a Croatian Nazi regime. And my grandfather was actually, uh, my Croatian grandfather was a prisoner of the Nazi Croatian regime for six months. I, he survived to, to his old age. Um, but, you know, still to this day, I, I meet a handful of Croats, you know, 30 years later after the, the, the war between 
Croatia and, and, and Serbia and, and Bosnia, um, uh, some Croats that view the other, you know, ordinary Serbs, they still view them as the enemy, as as vile. You know, a few years ago, I had plans to go to Belgrade, the capital of, of Serbia, to visit a friend. I told some Croats and some Croats told me, no, 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 don't go. You know, and others said, oh, that's cool. You know, I, I couldn't I didn't make it for personal reasons, but we still have this attitude amongst some Croats that, you know, Serbs are this inhuman enemy and and probably vice versa. But there's there's a large portion like myself who, uh, you know, I view Serbs as uh, Croats, you know, other, other fellow human uh, beings. So and, and, and any thought on that? Yes, that's first. I. I'm very glad to hear that your grandfather made it out because we, uh, I think a lot of us ha who have been in fortunate places have family members or friends who've been in hard places. And whenever I hear these accounts, I just, it's searing to hear these things, especially when we think of the fortunate lives we've been able to have for ourselves and mostly been spared that kind of stuff. On the issue of the lingering, long persistence of those hatreds, once they've been triggered, you're spot on. There's a fellow um, named Gerald Post, I believe is his name, and I think he was something like a deputy unit chief in the CIA, and he helped build the CIA's, I think it was the CIA's Behavioral um, Analysis Laboratory or something akin to that of that purpose, and he's done deep dives into the formation of the terrorist mindset. He focuses a lot on the indoctrination and the incitement to hatred, etc., and one thing he points out in his work is the great difficulty, once people have been indoctrinated in that fashion, of bringing them back through the door the other way. It's very difficult, just like you've encountered with people who have been through these horrors. And I feel I can't judge in a way because I've never been through such trauma. But when someone has been through such trauma for themselves and their families and their kids, one can imagine the lingering influence of that. And when folks do overcome that and finally are able to reconcile across these ethnic and religious and other divisions, it's, it's to me, one of the great stories of humanity whenever that happens. And I think what you're also getting at, and that I've been thinking about a lot, lady, even in American domestic politics, and you're seeing it in a lot of the industrial democracies, it's become more apparent than ever to me how deeply wired the tribal impulse is in people. Um, and I did some study, there's a ethnologist from Canada named Philip Carl Saltzman, who's written about the Middle East. And one point he makes, it's very interesting, is that the tribal structure and the deep tribal attachments and what they call shame, honor, culture, it actually was a very positive, highly adaptive thing for group survival in the days when they weren't national governments, justice systems, courts, and neutral police and all that, all the apparatus for the modern state when it's done in a liberal, small L, and decent way. Um, because the only way you could protect yourself and your group against other groups was being cooperative at a high level to fight off those who would raid and try to uh, take your stuff, pillage, etc. And that's why shame honor culture was a mechanism which was devised through human um, social evolution that everybody was required to step up when the attack came. You don't can't call the police. You can't call nine one one. It's you and your clansmen. And so those who failed to step up to the line when it was needed were terribly shamed and ostracized because it was a matter of survival for the group. And that's where shame honor culture comes from. Those who stepped up to the line and performed courageously received great honor. And so we look at tribalism and shame honor culture as a kind of backward thing from our modern comfortable perches, but it was very adaptive then. 
But the problem with shame honor cultures is the same problem we just talked about. Once you get these us versus them divisions and the social pressures, they're very hard to unwind. And so shame honor tribal cultures tend to be very fierce, tend to be very violent. And you see a lot of this in the Middle East, among other places. Um, and so this is where you realize that modernity and all the gifts it brings is to some degree a very artificial thing. And it can be a great set of blessings. But my next book is going to talk about it's precarious, and we see ourselves spitting away from it and a lot of the us versus them dynamics domestically, internationally, et cetera. I mean, there's there's so many tangents to go here. This is a fascinating um, discussion and, and, and your book. Um, I was going to bring this up later, but because you mentioned a few things and um you know, I, I wanted to share just just my perspective and that of some of my listeners, not all. You know, everyone's got different views. You brought up the Red Brigades um, in in Italy, and I recently had a podcast guest on. Uh, you know, incredible people, a Swiss historian, and he wrote the book on NATO's secret armies, uh, Operation Gladio, and um, this is actually confirmed by the European Union. You people can go to the EU website. In the 1990s, the EU admits that yes. Uh, NATO was involved in state terror. Uh, so, some of this stuff that went on with the Red Brigades. And in fact, there's a court case right now that's uh, going on in Italy related to some of that stuff in the 70s and how basically, you know, NATO uh, and European governments had a secret army that was involved in carrying out terror. Uh, they shot up civilians in the supermarket. They blew up a school bus of children. They assassinated the prime minister of Italy. So th these were our Western governments and just you know uh j just your thought on and, and you know in history this is common the roman empire carried out state terror uh hitler nazi germany right the the reichstag event uh the glywitz incident um you you, you know japan in world war ii uh, i actually believe the 1999 moscow ap apartment bombings were carried out by the russian um government there's academic evidence oh, yeah. for that uh and then you you also mentioned you know 9 11 um, you know, I, I don't believe the official story. I've never said it was uh, Israel. I just believe, again, it could have been elements within our own um, secret state uh, apparatus. But, um, you know, and, and, any and, and for me, th that does not discount the stuff that you're talking about. I think what you're discussing, Israel, um, you know, the, this ideologies of hatred and, you know, there are real, um, you know, white supremacists. Uh, I think the question becomes... Well, what scale of that is is true? So you know what I'm saying. I don't feel doesn't discount what you're saying. I just feel like there's an added layer now of uh, complexity. And so, just any, any thoughts on on what I just mentioned? Sure. I mean, that's a it's a wide open topic. There's, I think the background reality that we're both, I think, uh, aware of is that almost every social phenomenon of significance has multiple causal vectors. Unicausality is very rare. It may happen some places, but I, like if I was asked to say, where do you have a major social phenomenon with just one cause? I'd fail the test. I couldn't come up with one. And so there's certainly things beyond, even in my book, I go beyond the incitement indoctrination vector, um, minus focus more on forms of governance that tend to generate the us versus them dynamic. And we can get into that a little bit later. It's, it's very interesting. Um, I will say that uh, I'm a fan of David Satter, who's done some great reporting from Russia, and I've read a couple of his accounts of the rush uh, of the bombings of the hotels in Russia that precipitated parts of the Chechnya war. And Satter is quite convincing that it was the KGB, specifically in terms of the chemicals they found in the basement, which only the government had access to, 
Um, there was a lot of different circumstantial clues that pointed directly at the KGB and um, probably why Satter got thrown out and banned from Russia. Um, there's also a book by a woman whose name I forget at one of the uh, American uh, foreign policy think tanks. And she's done some interesting research into the use of, they tend to be undemocratic, more rogue style governments, as we might call them. She, and she looked a lot in South America and some other parts of the world where governments will use the rebel groups, which tend to be variations on armed gangs and et cetera, use them for their own purposes. Like there are some governments in South America of a very right-wing flavor that will use the armed groups to put down the left. Um, and so people are organizing the labor union, the government doesn't want its hands to be visibly dirty with the optics of the situation, and they'll sort of let, set the other groups on them. And I don't know the exact mechanism. I've only glanced at the book. I haven't read it fully yet, but it's very plausible. Um, I would say that I'm not familiar with the sources you're, you're relying on, and so I, I really can't speak to those. I'd be very saddened in the least to hear that the EU was behind some of the red, the bottom Einhof and, and Red Brigade's violence. Um, we do know that large, complicated state um, organizations sometimes, let's just say at the very least, there's a lot of mission drift. And so is it possible that there might have been some cross-cooperation for some broader objective? I don't know. Um, I hope not. I pray not. Because um, when we get into those kind of possibilities, you then touch on the very important subject for liberal democracies, which is when you erode trust, trust is like the egg. You know, once it's broken, it's really hard to put it back together again. And I'm sure we could do a whole show or two shows or more, and maybe have with your guest on the erosion of trust in American and the Western democracies through some things that went awry with COVID, et cetera. And it's really sad because um, you've... To have a highly functioning society that flourishes, your leaders have to keep the trust of the people, and the people have to have that trust for it to be effective. When that trust goes away, functionality decreases, and people are hurt. Yeah, it seems to be um, eroding very quickly um, right now. And you know, just on the Moscow apartment bombing thing, my favorite book was, I think it, the author was John Dunlop, uh, and he did a real detailed uh, examination there. Uh, but I guess... To get back to what um, we were discussing, um, you know, the, these ideologies of, of genocide and terror, you mentioned things, you know, you mentioned in, in the book Stanley Milgram experiment, uh, also things like incitement is the medium through which the ideology of terror actually materializes into the act of um, terror uh, itself. And so, you know, if you want to continue about, along some of these lines. Sure, sure. And before I do that, yeah, there's a horrific book titled by David Satter, which to me captures a lot of how I feel about the Soviet governance system. The title of the book is The Less You Know, The Better You Sleep. Um, and uh, But as to the social psychology, right, so the, that gets into the second sort of aspect of my research when I was, as I noted, becoming skeptical of the more common public explanations for genocide and terrorism that just weren't stacking up with what appeared to be the evidence. And so, as I said, you go through history, and you see that these groups constantly indoctrinate their recruits and members. Um, they don't come from the lower orders, so-called, as the theory would say. It's not usually the product of an ancient hatred. It might, there might have been an ancient hatred, but it has to be re-triggered affirmatively by a leader. But then the question became, well, does this really matter? Why is this so effective? Because the key point that I think you mentioned, too, was 
the people who commit genocides and the folks who commit acts of terror, the wish on the part of a lot of people is, well, they're just the small sociopaths. If we can weed out the sociopaths and the really bad actors, we'll be okay. But it's not that easy because, as you say, those who studied genocides in detail, and there's another book by a fellow called uh, Police Battalion 101, Ordinary Germans in the Holocaust by University of North Carolina scholar. It's a great read because he goes deeply into the demographics of one of the Einsatzgruppen. Those are the folks who were sort of quasi-police officers recruited by the Nazis that when our army moves east, and when, when the Nazis went to war with Russia, well, they started first in Poland and divided it with Germany, uh, divided it with Russia. But when the German armies moved east beyond mid-Poland, they had these Einsatzgruppen who would follow right behind the conquering soldiers, specifically tasked to round up every Jew in the town or the city or the village and kill them, which they often did by making them dig mass graves at gunpoint, strip naked, and then machine gun them all. There are just horrible stories of this. A lot of folks don't know that at least half of the massacres of the Holocaust took place in these open fields and ditches, not in the camps themselves. But the people who did it were the Einsatzgruppen, which were quasi-police officers recruited from German society. They were ordinary people. They came from all different socioeconomic classes, all different professions. Um, so, uh, the one that he studied, Battalion 101, came from the least Nazified major town in Germany. I think it was Hamburg. and. In other words, these people were not sociopaths, were not uh, people already into the ideology, but they were brought in and they were indoctrinated because they, they did indoctrination sessions all the while as they're moving eastward. There was just like in the communist societies, you have a political officer in the battalion, same thing in Nazi Germany. Um, and these ordinary people were basically turned into mass killers. And here's a stunning thing, which I didn't know till I dug deeply into research. These men were told at the start of the killing operations, Listen, those of you who can't handle the killing, feel free to step out. We'll get you another job. Like you'll guard the folks in the marketplace before we take them to the ditch or we'll help you dig the ditch, whatever. And very few people accepted that. Those who did were not punished. The peers couldn't see there was no punishment saying, look, I'll help you out, but I'm not doing the shooting or the killing. It was okay. It's most, th most often thought that these people did it under duress. I mean, obviously, there's a cultural duress in the indoctrination, and this is what we believe. But they were given permission not to shoot, and they shot anyway. And this one battalion mass murdered over 35,000 Jews, sent another X tens of thousands off to the camps on, on uh, kettle cars. And so that got into why a lot of social psychologists in the early 1960s forward started doing experiments to say, how do you get people to do this stuff? And that's where Milgram comes in. And probably a lot of you listeners know the experiment, so I'll be very brief for the summary for those who haven't. Yale psychologist, I'm, I'm outside in a haven. It was just down, down the road for me, named Staley Milgram, wanted to find out how the soldiers could do the acts of the Holocaust and the concentration camps and et cetera. So this is the paradigm he set up. He would bring people in and say, you were going to help us uh, determine whether punishment helps people learn better. And the way we're going to do it is, you're going to read a set of matching word pairs to the test subject, and you will have to encourage them to memorize the word pairs. Then after you've done that, you read them back to him. And each time he gets a word pair match wrong, you will press this button, and this guy's going to be hooked up to an electrode. And when you press the button, he's going to get an electric shock. And they let the person try it out once to feel the electric shock. And he said, each time they get another word wrong, 
up the shock by one notch and keep going up and up and up. Well, the truth is that guy wasn't getting shocked at all. He was just an actor. But the lab subjects didn't know that. They really thought he was getting electrocuted. And all the lab uh, officials said to him was, this is very important for science to find out these issues of punishment and learning capacity, so keep on going. And Milgram brought all the psychology staff from Yale into a classroom before he began the experiment. I read this book, it's fascinating. And he said, so how many of you think they'll go halfway up when the guy's starting to scream in pain? And they, oh, three, four, X percent. It'll be in single digits. And how many of you think they'll go to the top when the guy's just knock, knocks him out unconscious? Uh, nobody, maybe a sociopath or two, that's it. Mm -mm. Almost all of them went up to the midsection where the guy's screaming could be let released, acting, of course. And something like 65, 70% went to the top. And this was, uh, and I don't mean this as a point of shocking discovery, the experiment's been replicated around the world dozens of times with the same results. Men and women, same percentages, no difference. Um, so it's pretty stunning stuff. There are several other psych experiments I could easily get into with you. Just one I'll mention, because the other thing is propaganda that gets people to mass murder and rape and kill it's often false, right? Like you have to create these false stories of complete perfidy of the target group and the, and the victimization and goodness of the group doing the targeting, right? So you get a lot of false propaganda. So the other question is, how easy is it to get people to believe things that they should know are obviously false, right? And this is where we get to Solomon Ash. There's lots of psychologists who did these line matching experiments. Have you heard of these? They're fascinating. So Ash had, would have these um, big cards that people could key you know they'd be like i don't know eight by eleven or 14 by whatever and on each card there'd be just a written straight line a printed straight line and so he would show them to his lab subjects and obviously sometimes the two that he would show were the same length and sometimes the two that he would show were of different lengths the whole thing he wanted to say was which one is a match and which one is a non-match so when he did it with people one-on-one -on -one just alone, they got it right like 99% of the time. These were obvious truths, in other words, right? And the answer to the question was a simple truth, not a hard, complex one. Then he has the same person sit in a room with other people who've been pre, they're actors, and they've been pre-advised, you know, 70% of the time, I want you to say it's a match when it's not a match, and it's not a match when it is. And in that situation the people who were the test subjects that weren't actors but really being tested, 70% of the time they went along with the false story of whether the lives matched or not, just because of their peers. No threats, no violence, no intimidation, just they all think it's that way. I guess it must be that way. And then when they were interviewed after the experiment, they, he said, you know, you, you knew it was a different length, right? And they, they said, no, I didn't. In fact, they wanted to think that they were correct, even though they knew they were lying. This is the power of our social beings, our tribal being. And so there's lots of other experiments I could uh, talk about, but this gives you the flavor with that Milgram, how easy it is to trigger an ordinary people, like that German police battalion, the willingness to rape, kill, and slaughter, even for people who wouldn't do that otherwise. So, you know, th this then sort of brings me to this um, other question, and it's great that you laid out um the the ash and milgram experiment for us um and and you know this this deluge of of hate incitement now i did want to share a personal um example that you know experience that i had and you know i i, I have this problem as well with people who are in my podcast telegram channel or 
you know, th there are these people who obsess over the Jews. There is this real hatred for for Jews, and it, it really gets annoying. It, it it bothers me. And you know, as I mentioned before, I, I also do feel that um, there is some government in, in involvement in stoking that. But that you know, that, that's not all. All of these people, and I have personally experienced when I was um, in Switzerland. I, I heard from a Saudi Ara person from Saudi Arabia, a Saudi who oh, I heard with my own ears. From the person that they said uh, when they were asked what uh, do they think should be done regarding the whole Israel-Palestine thing or Israel. And this is Saudi said, you know, this is real. I heard it with my own ears. He said, I think, I don't know if he said we think or I think that Israel and the Jews should be pushed into the sea. Uh, and so I heard it with my own ears from a real Saudi that this is a real um sentiment and so you know for some of the people listening who are maybe more leftist who are very pro-palestine anti-israel or anti-zionist um you know maybe there are real grievances against the state of israel but we also have to factor in that there are people who exist who would want to do away with um the state of israel in, in its entirety or or the jewish people and i think you also talk about that in your book no yes very much and um yeah, first I want to say, I always like to say, criticism of the state of Israel is a perfectly normal, acceptable thing. Few people do it better than members of the Israeli Knesset and the opposition party. Um, and as we see in the debates over the Israeli Supreme Court, um, they can get sometimes pretty demonizing themselves vis-a-vis -vis each other's camps and governments. They're a very robust democracy, as it were. Um, what you get into there is covered at length in chapter six of my book, War on Hate, which is um, the existence of hate indoctrination across the Middle East that I, I can't say as I've done a statistical modeling to prove this, but when you study deeply the news, the propaganda, the public discourse in different parts of the world, I do think it's probably an accurate statement that the amount of hate incitement from the Middle East, often state-influenced or state-run media, probably the highest in the world. Um, and you get that in a magnified sense, very sadly, in the Palestinian territories. And I say this as an American Jew who thanks Palestinians, Jews, Christians, atheists, Buddhists, my view is we're all children of God, all entitled to equal dignity and respect. That's what it means to be human. And if you're a non-believer, as Immanuel Kant said, you know, no one shall be a means to my end. We're all ends as, as people entitled to equal dignity. So that's where I come from on this. Um, that being said, there's some real problems in the discourse in the Middle East, which feeds this stuff, like uh, the gentleman you met from Saudi Arabia. The media of the Middle East is, in most places, except now the Abraham Accords countries are changing, and Saudi Arabia is also changing, interestingly is just loaded with some of the classic tropes of anti-Semitism. The Jews are the ones, um, who, and because it's on Muslim section, Jews are the ones who killed Muhammad as opposed to killed Jesus, which is the traditional European anti-Semitic, I mean. Um, the Jews and the Israelis are poisoning your water supplies, poisoning your wells, etc. It goes on and on and on. Um, the interesting thing is that's always been a subpart from the days of competing religious faiths in the Middle East, uh, each faith of the Abrahamic tradition claimed to replace the faith before it. The Christians said that Jews' covenant with God is abrogated, now they've given it through Jesus to us. And then Muhammad, in some iterations, said, well, now that 
that that uh, covenant is with us, neither with the Christians or Jews. And so each one would sort of battle the other for that claim, led to a lot of tribe intertribal warfare and propaganda, et cetera. But um, my book after chapter six was documents the extraordinary degree of anti-Semitism and much, though not all of the Mideast media, talks about where did this come from? And if I could just talk about that a little bit, because I think it's both a tragedy, but also shows possibly a way out. Um, I mean, I am a great fan of the Abraham Accords. I suspect a lot of us feel that part of the reason Hamas, probably with Iran backing, went in to the horrors of October 7th was to disrupt the growing Saudi-Israel-Abraham Accords Entente, which is also not just for the Middle East, but also part of the global rivalry being shaped. And I know some of your other guests have talked about this, the new Cold War with Russia, China, and Iran leading the opposite anti-democratic axis. axis. So a thousand years ago, in the faith of Islam, there was a fascinating development. And reformers today are now adverting to it and calling on it as a source of uh, possible and, and positive reform. There was a group called the Matazalites, and they became very influential during the Abbasid Caliphate around the years 900, 1000, 800 forward to 1000 uh, CE. And the Matazalites were incorporating Aristotelian theory into Islam just like the rabbi Moses Maimonides around that time was bringing Aristotle into Jewish theology, and just like Thomas Aquinas, a little later than that, was bringing Aristotle into Christian theology. And with Aristotelianism and the faith systems, they were bringing forth our texts and our sacred words are also subject to the dictates of reason. And this happened in Islam as well. And there was actually a brief time when a caliph named al-Mamun adopted Mutazilism as the faith of the Islamic Abbasid Empire. I can't give you the exact date. I think it was around the late 800s or thereabouts. And they set up a house of wisdom, put in charge a guy named Al-Kindi, who was one of the great scholars of Islam. He'd written books. He studied medicine, astronomy, science, biology. And Al-Kindi said, this is 1,200 years ago. We should never be afraid of the truth no matter who it comes from or where it comes from, even from a race different from ours, because there is always honor in honoring the truth. This is, this is like what we wish we'd hear more from American college presidents who aren't as open-minded as that in some cases. It was amazing. But unfortunately, the Matazalites, like a lot of movements back in those days, were very extreme in their own views, and they come down hard on the rival Asherites, who were an anti-reason and anti-Aristotelian sect within Islam. Within 100 to 200 years, the Mutazilites were suppressed, and it was a brutal suppression. By around the year 1100, the Asherite caliphs were literally banning philosophy books and banning science. Why? Because philosophy and science makes us question, and that turns us into infidels. This was a terribly difficult turning point for mainstream Islam in the Middle Ages. And there are folks, there's a physicist in Pakistan today uh, who says if it wasn't for the Asherite suppression of the Matazalites, we would be an ecumenical faith today. We'd be getting along with everybody. We would be scientifically advanced. This suppressed science. There wasn't a scientific revolution in Islam after that. Before then, there would have been great developments from some of the Islamic scientists, but it got suppressed. How does that play in today? Well, whenever there were, uh, what's the word for it, threats? to the Ummah, to the borders of Islam, as the Western world was becoming technologically advanced and the Ottoman Empire was less so, um, people would revert to the Asherite suppression of the Matazilites. Um, 
It actually goes back to 1258 when the Mongols conquered Baghdad. 800,000, I believe, have been killed. The caliph, the king, they were put in carpets and stomped under horses. It was terrible. Out of that came a reaction, and the reaction was, we have to go back to our puritanical principles so Islam can rise up again and defeat these invaders. And that was Ibn Taymiyyah, who's, who developed this philosophy. Ibn Taymiyyah was the guy often cited by Osama bin Laden for the jihad. In 1744, something happened in Saudi Arabia that reinforced this. That was when Ibn Saud, who later became the head of the Saudi dynasty, met Ibn al-Wahhab, who was a follower of Ibn Taymiyyah from the 1250s, right? From 500 years before. And Saud, as you know the story, Ibn Saud says, hey, we'll make a deal. You get a lot of tribal support for your Wahhabi Islam. You can take care of the religious stuff. I'll take care of the military and governance, and we'll work this together. They conquered the Saudi Peninsula. It was defeated twice and won again twice by the early 1900s, that was the Saudi Wahhabi dynasty. So there were all these trends toward a much more radical and much less ecumenical form of Islam from the 800s to the 1200s to the 1700s to the present. And then it got reinforced in the 20th century, both by exogenous factors as well. When Germany in World War I was fighting England and France, etc., they went after the British and French colonies in the Middle East. And the way they did it was they allied with the Ottoman Empire, and promoted a massive propaganda jihad campaign. Over a million leaflets were distributed across the Middle East, printed a large part by German printers, working with the Ottoman Sultan, who started jihad against what was then the colonial rulers of much of the Middle East. This continued in the interwar years, particularly with Hajimin al-Husseini, who became the leader of Palestinian nationalism in the 1930s. Al-Husseini in the 1930s sought an alliance and in 1941 made an alliance with Adolf Hitler for an Arab-Nazi kind of joint conquest of the Middle East. Hitler said to Al-Husseini, who to this day is sort of the George Washington, the Palestinian national movement, he said, we will take the Middle East, you will be my emperor, and we'll be part of an empire. And they specifically agreed they would build another Auschwitz in Palestine to get rid of the Jews. This is all real, highly documented stuff. I got loads of books on these shelves that, that document this. The sad thing is, is that ideological virus was never really expunged after World War II. That became a large part of Arab radicalism. And then that was reinforced by the Soviets moving in after the Nazis were defeated to also use the Middle Eastern countries as a battering ram against the Western democracies. And so the Middle East has been horribly treated by the outside world, including by ideological manipulation. And it's a tragedy. They deserve better, but they're in a hard place. And that's what we're seeing playing out. And I've read some of, uh, to a small extent, the the stuff you've talked about. So I'm not, I I believe that's um, true. And that that sort of brings up, brings us to your recent op-ed for the Times of Israel, which you sent me. But before getting to that I, you know again i want to look look at the other side of the coin and um i don't think any people group or state again is immune to falling into some of this stuff to to to, to different extent um and, and just from the you know jewish perspective um you know i i've known many fantastic jews and israelis throughout my life i've been to israel i've been to as a kid i grew up in skokie uh illinois right uh, uh, yeah, yeah huge jewish community uh one of my I remember one of my neighbors, Hank, who who I'd mow his grass. He'd make me um, um, breakfast. He um, he was uh, um, you know a Jewish guy, and it turned out he when he passed away, he had been a millionaire, and he, he never told uh, uh, anyone about it. Wow. Uh, but you know, I've been to bar mitzvahs and bat mitzvahs, <laughs> but 
uh, you know, just a few things to look at the, the, the example, if you have any thoughts in Israel, where I have seen a few videos of radical or extremist Jewish figures, I guess, rabbis describing us Gentiles as as pigs and such. Um, and I, there's this great documentary on the Shin Bet, how uh, in that documentary, the Shin Bet in the 90s had to put a stop to, again, a small extremist group of, of, of Jews plotting to blow up the Al-Aqsa Mosque, which would Correct. have ushered in World War III. Um, and have you just, I'm just curious, have you looked into uh in israel or or um among a portion of jews this sort of yes. radical ideology yeah i mean every group in the world in varying degrees has their bad guys and bad gals you know they do and um they tend to be either psycho slash sociopaths or radical ideologues sometimes both and jews are no exception you know they're humans and um the far far right uh which is something you don't see much in America, though some of it was going on in the 70s in New York City. Um, it's real. I have read also about the plot to blow up the uh, uh, the Temple Mount, which includes, the irony is it doesn't just include the mosques that were built over it after the Muslim conquest of the Middle East in the late 600s. That's also the same place where the ancient Jewish temple stood. And one of the parts of it was a place called the Holy of Holies. And that's where, before the invasions with the Romans and other, the tablets of the Ten Commandments, I believe they were kept there, that they carried through the desert in the time of Moses. Um, I mean, that was and, and, and the place was considered so holy for Jews, that location, that no Jew was allowed ever to enter it. It was a closed part of the temple, except the high priest once a year on the Day of Repentance, known as Yom Kippur, which comes mostly in September. And so it's so ironic that these guys, out of their resentment that the Muslims built temples, their mosques over the ancient temple, were going to blow it up because they'd also be blowing up the most holy place in all Judaism as well. So they were they were bad radicals, no question. And the Shin Bet, kudos to them for unearthing the plot and getting it indicted, prosecuted, and prevented. Thank God. Um, and so you got to see these things all over the place in any group. Um, as you probably know, in the American context, the Jewish community is, by and large, outside of the orthodox, tends to lean liberal and democratic more than centrist conservative, although that may be slightly changing in the face of recent events. It's not clear. Um, Israel, as you see, is sort of split down the middle. And I think the question goes to the political dynamic of Israel to some degree. Israel was founded for the most part by democratic socialists from South Russia, Eastern Europe. I mean, and, and there were some from Western Europe. Theodor Herzl was a Western European, the guy who came up with the idea that we really should do this because there's no future for us in Europe. Herzl foresaw something like the Holocaust from the Dreyfus trial of the 1890s in France. He saw that we could live in the corners and, and quasi-ghettos, whatever, but it's, it's never going to be really good for us in Europe. And as a result of that experience, he, with other Jews, um, conceived of the idea that there's always been Jews living there. There's always been Jews who went back there, but they were not as large in numbers as what came in the late 19th century. Um, so the idea, the reason I mention this is most of modern Israel was founded by democratic socialist folks from Europe. Um, who had a more democratic socialist perspective, they tended to be more secular or reformed Jewish than Orthodox, although there was always a lot of Orthodox Jews in Jerusalem who lived there throughout. 
But when Israel was declared a state by the United Nations in 1948, um, there were about 850,000 Jews already living in the Middle East, Morocco, Sudan, Egypt, Iraq, etc., very active in those countries. They were pretty much all kicked out. And some went to America and Europe, but most of them went to Israel. So demographically, Israel is more a Middle Eastern Jewish Arabic country than an Ashkenazi European Jewish country. The population majority is from the Middle East. And they tend not to be as left liberal as the European Jews, as American Jews. And so, as one political comedy put it, Israel's sort of becoming a red state, to use the American lexicon. They have a bit of a majority. But why is that happening? I'll give you an example. I have a relative who lives in Israel. He's a brilliant guy. He's like a software. He's brilliant. And he designed software for one of the top uh, computer companies in America. He and his wife and kids made Aliyah, moved to Israel. They live just outside Jerusalem. And um, a good man. He voted. For, he was very liberal in the American context. One year, he voted for the Green Party for president. He voted for Netanyahu this last time. Why? Security. Security, both from Iran and the external threat, and also the increasing terrorism. Well before October 7th, there was increasing terrorism coming out of the West Bank and Israel, the largest number of terror murders since around 2005 and the Second Intifada. So, yeah, Israel's turning red, to use the American lexicon. Um, but there's still a strong liberal presence in Israel. You see that around Tel Aviv especially. Uh, but like the rest of the Western world, generally, Israel is becoming more polarized. And I think probably we share a sense that this may not end well if, if it's not turned around. Yeah, that made me think when I was in Israel a couple years back, wonderful time. Uh, I stood on the Temple Mount. It was you know amazing. And our tour guide, I was just asking him his views on politics. He was a full-on Bibi Netanyahu, and just like you mentioned, like I think it was part partially for security reasons, but full on, you know, Netanyahu. But then, you know, as you mentioned, there are Israelis and Jews of other persuasions, and for me, again, that dispels this idea that um, Jews run the world like a people group. I mean, you've got Jews that have nothing to do with any of this, and it's you know, one of my listeners was angry that I don't believe this, and they actually commented that my podcast, Geopolitics and Empire. Uh, should be called Jew politics and empire because I don't I don't subscribe to this, but I, I you know I do have to mention that there have been um, there was a Canada vice journalist who received financing from the Canadian government who for a while on Twitter was attempting to paint me as some sort of anti-Semitic yeah. neo-fascist far right Nazi, and I keep repeating. Look, my own listeners call me geopolitics and empire, and my grandpa was a Nazi prisoner. So, uh, you know, uh, nice try. I, I had to mention that. But, um, you know, going forward, you know, um, you know, other key aspects regarding uh, your, your research, um, you know, your recent op-ed is called To End Hamas Horrors, Denazify Palestinian Culture, you know, uh, other key thoughts here. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. And, and I hear you on the issue of... Uh... It's easy once you become a public figure, especially so in your case with the podcast and on social media, that uh, people don't just disagree. They, they demonize us, the us versus them again. You know, my, my joke about the idea that the Jews run the Jews can never run the world. We can never set up a dictatorship. We argue with each other way too much. You know, I mean, uh, this is, uh, there's jokes I can tell you that I won't bore you with, but um, those conspiracy theories Although they're dangerous, they're also silly in a certain respect, too. They just don't accord with reality. But yeah, the op-ed I just wrote, I, I occasionally write for the Times of Israel, among other publications. And 
It was. It was titled To End Hamas Horror, Denazify Palestinian Culture. This is not meant as an insult to the Palestinian people, who I'll say again, um, they deserve equal dignity and respect, and they deserve a life and a community and a kind of sovereignty where they can feel their self-respect and self-autonomy. And how we get there is the great problem, whether it's two-state solution, some confederation with Jordan. I don't know the answer. And ultimately, the Palestinians will have for themselves help shape that answer in their own autonomy and in time. Um, my thesis is basically that from the things I was describing, the tortured history of the Middle East that includes both. And, and one thing I didn't mention before, let's add in. When the British were post-World War I administering parts of the remnants of the Ottoman Empire, remember the English and the French moved in after World War I, not because these were free and independent countries. They were part of the 500-year-old Ottoman Empire. All these different Arab countries had been under the boot of the Ottoman Empire. Now, the Ottoman Empire, as empires go, was not so dictatorial or totalitarian. They did allow some cultural um, autonomy. But it was still an empire. You had to pay tribute to the, to the sultan, etc. And it wasn't always a nice experience. What Britain and France did was to say, we're going to help guide these other parts of the empire to national independence and allow them finally to be free. And whether it was the right or wrong thing, they said, we probably should help them because they haven't been independent states ever. And now we're saying, become a modern independent state. You can't really do that overnight. And we could help them with that. And I'm sure there was self-interest of wanting to have alliances, get along with them, have a source of oil. All those things played in, of course. But the reason I mention this is, the sad thing is, when Britain had the mandate post-World War I over the area known as Palestine, they selected as the religious leader for the Palestinian Arabs a very radical guy named Hajimin al-Husseini. There were other Palestinian Arab voices vying to become the Grand Mufti, the spiritual leader in the early 1920s, both for the Nashashibi family and the Al-Khalidi family. And while I wouldn't say that there were Zionists or wanting to build a Jewish state and what they regarded as their homeland, they were willing to negotiate and work with the Jews. And this is the other thing. Many Palestinian Arabs in the 1920s to the mid-1930s got along very well with their Palestinian labors and vice versa. There were joint cooperative projects to build a seaport, to uh, build up the land, professional associations, civic associations. That was all torn apart largely by Hajimi and Hal-Husseini, the one the British appointed the radical to be the leader of the Palestinian Arabs spiritually. And as I've said, he was the one who built the alliance with Hitler in the 1940s and propagandized massively against the Jews and set the Middle East in that direction. And this is where I say, the German influence, which Al-Husseini allied and brought in, followed by the Soviet influence, which all played off the same demonology of the Jews up until now, has left its mark on the Middle East and especially in Palestinian society. And it's a shame. Palestinians in the Middle East are among the most highly educated group in the Middle East. They are a potentially highly productive, efficacious people who can do lots of good things, but their leadership has imbued this radical ideology of Jew hatred. And I have a whole subchapter in my book. It is the most intense in the Middle East. It's extraordinary. And I'll just get, if I could read just a few sentences from the article, because the point of the article is this. The case I make is, when both Hamas ruled Gaza and the PA ruled West Bank, there exists the world's most powerful ideological ecosystem for the mass production of terrorists, which is not only a crime against Israel, it's a crime against the Palestinian people. They deserve much better than that. In the Palestinian society of today, and this is really tragic, but it's abundantly documented, the schools, the television, the mosques, 
the mass media, and civic ceremonies. They constantly lionize suicide bombers. When a suicide bombing or a killing of a Jew is successfully carried out, all over the West Bank and Gaza, the cities and streets light up with celebrations, fireworks, giving out candy to children. We've killed another Jew. There are videotapes and videotapes of this. This is no fringe thing. This is reality. Um, when a, there's a fantastic and very disturbing book by a couple of journals titled The Road to Martyr's Square, The Making of a Suicide Bomber. These are two American journalists who spent a few years living in the West Bank and Gazan territories. I think it was in the late 1990s, early 2000s, time of the so-called Second Intifada, when Arafat rejected a two-state peace offer. When someone commits a suicide bombing, not only do you immediately get the celebration in the streets, they host these funerals and they're massive celebrations. People are bust in to celebrate the suicide bomber. They print, I don't know if you probably remember growing up in Illinois, American kids, we all would have these baseball cards of our baseball heroes, Frank Robinson, Mickey Mantle, Willie Mays. They have martyr cards. They print them in the thousands and kids collect martyr cards, cards of suicide bombers. That's what they put on their shelf, in their bedrooms, et cetera. Martyr posters are draped over stores and stalls and shops, etc. It is just a culture. And by the way, the founder of the Muslim Brotherhood, Hassan Albana, who founded it in 1928, in 1937-38, he published an article that's a very famous article in Muslim Brotherhood circles called Industry of Death. He said, we have to create an industry of death, show them we're not afraid of death. We'll take death, we'll use it to become martyrs and to win and create a global caliphate. This is the extreme strand of Islam, but it's been adopted in the Palestinian territory. So my take is, if you ever want to have some kind of either a two-state peace, a confederation with Jordan and Egypt or something, you've got to get this ideological extremism out of Palestinian society. And I say this sincerely, feeling the Palestinian people deserve a better life than the one they've handed by this radicalism. I thought I'd mention... You know, um, yes, uh, one of my professors at the Geneva School of Diplomacy was um, head of the PLO, I think, in in wow. Fran France or some European country. And I, I believe he's the brother-in-law um, of Yasser Arafat. Um, so that was a fascinating experience. And uh, <laughs> interesting, you mentioned this. Again, I, I have got no idea uh, regarding solutions. And again, it's not my fight. I, you know, I mentioned I, I'm um, also a Mexican national. I live here in Mexico. You know, earlier this week in another state of Mexico, 13 Mexican police officers and the politician were summarily executed by 30 plus cartel members. So, uh, you know, when, when people want me to cover, you know, I'm dealing with my own mini Israel Palestine here in Mexico. You know, we, th th that's, you know, that's another fight for the people there. I can't have an opinion on everything and I don't have the solution. You know, I, I as you mentioned, I believe in this and having in the existence of the state of Israel. Uh, but as you've also mentioned that I'm a Christian, there are many Palestinian Christians who are suffering as well. Um, yeah. the, I, I, you know, for a while I thought, you know, why not incorporate them as into the one state of Israel, maybe have two state solution. I've got no idea, but I, I thought I'll also mention yesterday one of my past pod, podcast guests, Johan Galtung, who's the, I've, I've had him on twice. He's the founder of peace and conflict studies. Um, he he just turned ninety three years old. Um, it, it seems like he's bedridden. They they posted a photo of him, but he just recently suggested one of the solutions, uh, a number of them, but one of them being a sort of regional union, which uh, kind of was interesting. You you kind of alluded to it. So Johann Galtung um, suggested maybe some sort of like con confederation, as, as as you mentioned, uh, between Israel and 
Middle Eastern states, which kind of gels with the Abraham Accords um, uh, idea. I just thought I'd put that out out there. That that was interesting to hear that from Johan um, Galtung. Uh, but I, I do have to ask you when you mention Hamas, uh, and I've just seen headlines from official sources, right? Times of Israel, Heretz, uh, other reports going back 10, 20 years. Um, I, this is for me interesting. I, I've got no idea what to make of this. Apparently Netanyahu uh, and some of the Israeli government in the past have supported Hamas, given them funding or or, or, or weapons like um, they made, they were somehow using that in their strategy. Do you know anything about this? Why, why they would do such a thing? Yeah, I'm insufficiently informed. And like you, I have seen the occasional headline reference to this. I haven't done the deep dive to intelligibly speak on it. All I will say now is, if I think that from the headline or maybe lead paragraph I might have read as I was skimming through various things, the claim seems to be that Netanyahu allegedly thought this new group Hamas might be a counterweight to the Palestinian Authority which Netanyahu, I do think accurately perceived the Palestinian Authority in its present incarnation then and now was not really prepared for two-state peace. And a little anecdote about that, I'll tell you in a minute. Um, and therefore, perhaps he saw this new Islamist group, in, 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 which was mostly forming toward Gaza, but was around the territories. Maybe he thought that could be a check on, on PA, a sort of play one against the other. I don't know if that's true. I mean, that's the hypothesis that I guess is, is out there. I think that if that is true, um, it, we all can see in retrospect, big mistake, big mistake, you know, but whether it happened or not, I couldn't say. Just a little point on why some folks in the Israeli leadership are very skeptical, also the Palestinian Authority, because in Western discourse, it tends to be, there's a set of folks who say Hamas, annihilation is bad, Palestinian Authority, hmm, kind of hard to work with, but they're the moderate ones. I I no longer subscribe to the moderate Palestinian Authority analysis. I did it. I, I was hoping at the time of the Oslo Accords, I watched that on TV. I watched the White House signing with Bill Clinton, Yitzhak Rabin, and Yasser Arafat. And like a lot of folks, I was jubilant and hopeful. Um, obviously, that hope is dissipated in my, in, in my experience. But literally the day of the Oslo Accords signing in 1993 on the White House lawn, where Arafat and Rabin both said, we pledge to lay down our arms against each other. We will have peace going forward, yada, yada. That same night on Jordanian television, a pre-recorded statement by Yasser Arafat was played in which he said, we've done phase one of the plan of phases. The plan of phases was something that the Palestinian Authority had talked about, the PLO had talked about before there was a PA in the early 1990s and the 80s. First, get land use that land to develop our strength, and then when we are at that point in Israel as we can strike the final blow against Israel. But we need a land base, and we need weapons, and we need our forces ready and primed to do it. And Arafat basically said the night of the Oslo Accord signing, all right, we're in phase one, we're now in phase two, let's start arming on the lands that Israel is ceding to us, and we will then strike the final blow at the right time. In other words, unfortunately, never really was an acknowledgement that we will live together in peace by the PLO slash PA. I wish they would. I hope they will, but I don't think they're there at this time. That's all. We've um, we've covered a lot, but I still think scratch the surface of your uh, <laughs> book. Uh, you, you, I like how you mentioned in your book R.J. Rummel, who I'm a big fan of. I think he coined the phrase "democide," 
Uh, and you know, where I think and I agree with his thesis. I don't know if you particularly focus on that, but that historically it's the state which is most responsible for um, death. But you, uh, you know, look at the 20th century, all of the governments that mass murdered um, their own populations. But you, you know, getting to final thoughts and solutions, you, you do make a point that more democracy means less uh, genocide, and so liberalization. Uh, is is good. You also mentioned we need robust, proactive policies to prevent individuals from acquiring and developing genocidal or terrorist aspirations and to prevent any such aspirants from having a plentiful supply of potential uh, accomplices. And so, um, you know, the way forward, uh, any thoughts? Yeah, no, thank you. And I agree. R.J. Rummels, I discovered him in the course of my research. He's fascinating. And um, he, along with others, if I could just digress a little bit. So I knew that, as we said, Nothing is monocausal that's this big and significant in history. And so I want to know if, if it's not ancient hatreds, it's not um, poverty and desperation, et cetera, but, but, but incitement is one of the causes of genocides and terrorism. Well, what are the more empirically proven causes? And from, for instance, Barbara Harf, who was actually, um, what's the word for, contracted by the CAA many years ago to say, do a comprehensive study on genocide and its causes. And they see just your free reign, do whatever you do. We'll support your research because we want to find out, is there a way to prevent this stuff? She came up with a, a statistically tested list of circumstances in the places where genocide happens. And she was looking for the common factors that keep showing up again and again and again about the regime, about the social structure, et cetera. And among the lead forms of, uh, there were a couple others, but three that stuck out were autocracy as a form of government, exclusive minority role in that government, or exclusive minority rule, keeping out the majority, and an exclusivist ideology. Those are three factors that make you very likely to have a genocide. Then I looked also under the terrorism heading. There's no one study like Harf's for like the multi-causal analysis of terrorism, but you do have a lot of single-factor studies that appear to have a lot of empirical and persuasive weight. And three that really jumped out as I went through book after book were repression of civil rights is always correlated with high levels of terrorism. When people can't talk, they then take to weapons sometimes. Um, official corruption, high levels of corruption where you feel like the state's constantly fleecing you and, and keeping it from themselves. That generates that resentment. And it's like, screw them. I'll shoot my way to getting my way if I can't do it otherwise. And thirdly, relative group deprivation, which is different from just poverty per se. Relative group deprivation means when as almost a de jure factor within a society, group A, they get all the goodies, the opportunities, the university educations, the yada yada, the favorable investment rates. Group B, screw you. You're off in the ghetto or whatever. And so when you have all those factors playing, your risks of mass violence, of terrorism, genocide are there. And I said in the book, what is the one thing that autocracy, exclusive minority rule, exclusive ideology, repression of civil rights, official corruption, and de jure relative group deprivation, every one of those factors is a negation of a feature of liberal democracy. So then I said, all right, looks like we got a hypothesis here. And I said, well, do liberal democracies manifest lower genocide rates? That's where Rommel comes in. Rommel comes in. Liberal democracies virtually never commit genocides. Modern, mature liberal democracies, they just don't. They don't do politicide, democide. And same thing with respect to terrorism. There are scholars who will tell you, there's a guy named Amachai Magan, one of the terrorist researchers in Israel, quote, 
a high-quality democracy is increasingly proving to be the best counter-terror organization known to humanity. Similar things from Shadi Hamid at the Brookings Institution. Pushing democracy in places where it is possible and done right can reduce the risk of terrorism. So in addition to doing everything we can to reduce us versus them hate propaganda and hate ideologies from spreading and metastasizing, liberalizing societies, if you can do it, is a really helpful anti-mass killing thing. Now, as you know, that gets to the whole discussion of can a society be helped along the path to go from autocracy and corruption toward liberal democracy? You know, Afghanistan, this, that, we all know it's fraught with potholes. I won't, that's probably a topic for another show, but I think there are some ways to try to do it that are effective. I'll tell you one thing that's really important. Um, I don't know if you've heard of Amy Chua. She's a law professor at Yale Law School who does a lot of work on inter-ethnic violence and so forth. And she has two books that speak to this. One is called World on Fire, and the other one is called Political Tribes. They're very interesting. And what she points out is that when you try to shift an autocratic country down the path of democracy, two things happen. One, and, and, and assuming, as most countries are, they're multi-ethnic, right? There's almost never a mono, like Japan is a mono-ethnicity pretty much. Very few countries like that. Multi-ethnic countries with different ethnic groups tend to have different internal subcultures. There typically is one or a few groups that tend to be more primed and ready culturally to take advantage of market economy, liberal democracy, ways of living. Others that might be more stuck in tradition ways of life, and I don't mean to be pejorative, but just have a more traditional way of life that's less adaptive to the market economy and modern democracy. Group that's primed for it, and you see this around the world. You see it with a lot of Jewish folks in Europe 100 years ago. You see it with the um, Igbos in Nigeria as compared to other tribes. You see it with a lot of uh, folks from uh, Lebanon who've populated parts of Africa. And this happens all over the world. The ethnic Chinese in Malaysia, they rise to the economic top very quickly when you open up the economy and open up the, the path of meritocratic achievement. Well, that's one thing that happens. Those who feel they're left behind, the politicians from those groups have their perfect scapegoat in the other group. So Chua's point is, you get a lot of ethnic violence at times of regime transition to an open market society, which we like to see to get people flourishing, but it opens the pathway for that ethnic conflict. So what does Chua say? In those transitions, those involved have to be really careful to try to minimize the economic stresses by helping the lower achieving groups have some say, have some uh, opportunities, et cetera, to not make the transition one that's going to explode the less successful groups. So these are the kind of things you got to think about when you talk about democratization. Very hard to do, but if you want to have a low massacre society, you are better off with a world of liberal democracies. The question is, can we ever get there? And, and just to add on to what you mentioned about resentment, you know, many decades ago, I, I heard from a Croatian soldier, a soldier who participated in the war in in, in Croatia, Bosnia, Serbia, former Yugoslavia, um, that th this this guy at some point. Uh, he got fed up. Um, he got became disillusioned with the Croatian Republic afterwards, and mm -hmm. rightly so. They they sold out a lot of the the, the patriotic soldiers that fought for uh, our country. And uh, he, some people were, were you know, he, he thought about filling a truck with explosives and dri driving it into the uh, Croatian Parliament in, in Zagreb. Uh, he, he never did anything like that. But you just never know. We, you know, some of us were freaked out, like. Because uh, you never know if a soldier is going to do something. Like some of them do, right. but that was that for me. That was an example of what you're talking about. 
this sort of resentment, uh, which can be true. You know, the gov- the Croatian government did afterwards it became corrupt, but um, thankfully, you know, he, he didn't carry that. <laughs> he didn't carry that out. And so uh, we've covered uh, uh, a lot. Your book again is. Um, the link is in the description. Uh, War on hate: How to stop genocide, fight terrorism, and defend freedom. Uh, is there any best place to find you on the internet? Sure, Amazon. Oh, myself. Uh, I'm on the American media website Muckrack. M u c k r a c k. It's an aggregator site for people's publications. Probably the best one for me. I'm on LinkedIn. I sometimes make comments on X, um, and uh, the books on Amazon and secondary sellers as well. But uh, thank you. I hope you enjoyed this Geopolitics and Empire podcast. The website is geopoliticsandempire.com, and I encourage you to sign up for the free email list that goes out with each podcast and every weekend with a collection of news headlines. The newsletter and website are our last lines of defense. We're being censored and deplatformed. It's nearly impossible to find Geopolitics and Empire on the Google search engine. We've been blacklisted. YouTube frequently takes down our videos with strikes, Facebook restricts our page, Reddit and Twitter take down posts, and after the Associated Press mentioned geopolitics and empire in a 2021 article co-written with NATO, our Patreon account was terminated. Vimeo also terminated our Pro account. The best free way to help geopolitics and empire is to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere and subscribe to all of our media channels. You can find the video broadcast now on five platforms, Odyssey, Rockfin, Rumble, BitChute, and Brighteon. You can find the audio broadcast on the podcast ecosystem, SoundCloud, Apple, Spotify, and so on. My current favorite social media channels are Twitter and Telegram, but you can also find us on Gab, MeWe, Minds, Float, VK, Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Finally, Geopolitics and Empire is in dire need of funding to continue. You can leave a donation, purchase a consultation with the host, or become a member to receive additional benefits. We also produce a weekly broadcast called Dissident Thinker for members and Rockfin subscribers only. We will continue to fight the good fight come hell or high water. Thank you for listening.